Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek, the American Gaming Association, and the Las Vegas Metro Chamber of Commerce hosted a post debate analysis panel following the third presidential debate at UNLV on October 19th. Moderated by veteran political reporter and communications strategist Mitch Fox, the panel consisted of Adam Hodge, communications director for the Democratic National Committee, Sean Spicer, chief strategist and communications director for the Republican National Committee, and strategic advisors at Brownstein, former Senator Mark Begich and Barry Jackson. How many people actually saw the debate last night? Every hand should be raised, right? It was incredible. There was no Mick Jagger in town, so no competition. So, without further ado, uh, let me introduce our panel. Starting on my right now, based on political ideology, they're on my right. They should be actually on the other side, but you have it all figured out. It's, it's favorable to you. Mark Begich was mayor of Anchorage from 2003 to 2009 and was then elected as a United States Senator representing Alaska from 2009 to 2015. As a Senator, Mark served in the leadership of the majority party as chairman of the steering and outreach committees and OCEAN's subcommittee, as well as the emergency management and disaster committee. He also served on appropriations, commerce, budget, veterans, homeland security, and government affairs, armed services, and Indian affairs committee. Senator Begich is a strategic advisor with Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, Shrek. Please give Senator Begich a warm welcome. Adam Hodge is communications director at the Democratic National Committee. He most recently served as the deputy assistant secretary for public affairs at the U.S. Department of the Treasury after first serving as spokesperson. Prior to his stint at Treasury, Adam was a regional press secretary and director of African-American media at the DNC. He also worked at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee in the office of the House Majority Whip at the House Oversight Committee and for Senator Chris Dodd. Please welcome Adam Hodge. <laughs> Sean Spicer served as RNC Communications Director since 2011 and in 2015 added the duties of Chief Strategist. In his additional role, he led the negotiations and implementation of the new presidential primary debate structure. He previously served as Assistant United States Trade Representative for Media and Public Affairs in the George W. Bush administration. From May 2005 to 2006, Sean was Communications Director for the House Republican Conference, and before that, he served as Communications Director for the House Budget Committee. Please welcome Sean Spicer. Barry Jackson served as Chief of Staff or Speaker of the House John Boehner from 2010 to 2012 and was Speaker Boehner's first Chief of Staff from 1991 through 2001. During that time, Barry was also Executive Director of the House Republican Conference during Speaker Boehner's tenure as Chairman. Prior to his return to Speaker Boehner's office, Barry served from 2001 to 2009 in the White House of President George W. Bush as the first Director of the newly created Office of Strategic Initiatives. Barry is a strategic advisor with Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, Shrek. Please welcome Barry Jackson. So uh, I, one of the questions that I was gonna pose, and it, it is maybe I won't pose it now, is who won the debate. Um, 
I think there was a lot of media attention, a lot of social media attention in terms of what Mr. Trump said. Well, a lot of what's dominating the headlines today is his statement about he's not yet willing to accept the outcome of the election, which is fairly unprecedented. Mr. Spicer, did we see the end of the election last night? No, not at all. Um, look, I, I think this is, this is a change election. Um, there's a reason the polls are what they are. I mean, if, if I think the media wants this to be over. I think the media is clearly um, has their opinions. They don't, they don't like the structure and the way that Trump has, has conducted his campaign because it doesn't fit into the narrative that they want. Uh, but it is far from over. It is, a, it is a margin of error race right now as we head into the final, um, final 20 days. The thing that's interesting is that, I mean, you have an opponent with Hillary Clinton. Um, I think people know what they're getting with Clinton. They, they, they've known her right or wrong, good or bad. She's been around for 30 years, in and out of Washington. And I think if you're with her, you're with her now. Um, I think Trump's got an opportunity to make that closing argument in the next 20 days. Um, but both nationally and in the key states, uh, this is, this is going to come down to, to election day. Did you think it was a definitive moment, or were there several in last night's debate? I mean, there were absolutely several key moments. That was the most uh, shocking uh, point, I think, for not just us at the DNC, but I think for a lot of Americans. Look, like I've been on campaigns where we've won and lost. We never question the integrity or that, uh, or after the results were uh, were in, um, who who won and that it was totally legitimate. You know, when I was um, I was born and raised in St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, my uncle ran for lieutenant governor in 1994. Uh, I remember he lost the runoff, uh, and my father telling me, I was like, how did he lose? How, like, how could this happen? And he said, the other guy got more votes. And that was the result, and that was, that was it. And we accept, and I, it, as an eight-year-old boy, it made me really sad, obviously. But you accepted it. And that, I think, um, that's what our democracy is about. Uh, and that, I think... Uh, is why I think the comments last night, you know, were um, so far beyond beyond the, the pale. I, you know, I don't. Uh, I think it will have consequences for uh, the rest of the election. I think we're already uh, in a really strong position. Uh, but I think last night, those. I mean, any American who saw that uh, had to be just completely offended. Barry, there were, there were a lot of polls reflected prior to the debate uh, that there there was a disadvantage for the Trump campaign, and it was growing certainly in, in some battleground states. Um, and that the pressure was on Mr. Trump to really pull it out, really hit it out of the ballpark. Did he at least have some moments, do you think, where, where he accomplished what he needed to accomplish? Yeah, so I, um, I think if you want to play the scorecard that, that kind of way, the first 30 minutes of the debate, it, it was a calm, rational exchange back and forth. They got into ideas. I thought Chris Wallace did a very good job at that. So if most of America was expecting that train wreck and they turned on the TV, that first 30 minutes they didn't see it. So you just wonder how many people kept with it because um, I, I, you know, to, to Sean's point, if you like her, you walked out of there last night liking her. And if you didn't, you walked out not liking her. And the same for Donald Trump. And, and so I th from that perspective, uh, didn't you know there was no glaring bad thing that I think just all of a sudden makes everybody just stop and go we can't do this and I and 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 one point I just I have to make this 
So I serve on the board of the National Endowment on Democracy. So this point about respect for elections is really true. I, I've done trainings and observations all over the world, and you tell people that this is how democracy works. But I have to say, there's a little bit of this faux outrage because I was in Florida in 2000. <laughs> I remember when the electoral votes were counted, the protests on the House floor. I remember in 2004, the, the electoral votes were challenged on the House floor. I remember Democrat elected officials and Democrat operatives for all eight years calling President Bush illegitimate. It's just part of the back and forth. But did Al Gore? Yeah. But Al Gore didn't concede the election until 30 days after. I mean, so. After it was certified. I, but, but, but my point to Barry is look, I, and I, I don't mean to just jump in, but I, I think we've got to remember to everyone out there right now, I mean, wh how, how this actually plays out, which is there's 40 something percent of, of voters right now that are definitely <coughs> with Trump no matter what he says or does. Same thing with Clinton. I mean, that's where we are as a country. That's where we've been for at least since, since 2000, meaning that whoever puts an R next to their name and whoever puts a D next to their name is going to be in the mid-40s somewhere. You're playing for, for inches right now. And I got asked yesterday on a radio show, you know, how can you be an undecided voter right now? Right? And I, I, I agree. I don't think there are really any undecided voters. I think what there are are people who don't want to say who they're voting for or are just sort of sitting back and saying, I want to be with Trump, or I'm not sure I'm with Hillary. And they just, they're not willing to push the trigger, and they're saying, look, I hope something happens in the last 18 days. But what Trump did last night, frankly, was I think there are a lot of people, and whether or not you get into a cab or an Uber or bump into someone at the grocery store, there is a lot of, of you know, people in this country that are just tired of the status quo. He's speaking to that. And I know for a lot of people, they just, they, they're this, as Barry said, this faux outrage. There are people that are just tired of Washington telling them that they have to accept the status quo. He's speaking to that. And I think that one of the mistakes that I think a lot of you know, people, companies, associations are doing these days is sort of dismissing that and saying, oh, that's just a bunch of crazy people. There is a lot of people in this country right now, close to half, that are ready for change and don't like the direction that the country's going in or the way that Washington operates. And to, uh, you know, the economy the way it is now with, with Yelp and Twitter, and we have become a society that can, that can tell you right off the bat, I don't like how things are going. I didn't like my stay at the hotel. I didn't like you know, this restaurant. And they're now realizing that they can do that with their democracy as well, get much more involved. And, and, um, and so I think that the one point that I have tried to make over the last couple of years to people is stop viewing this election through the prism of the last few because there's nothing about this election that is traditional or normal. Uh, yeah. Senator Biggers, let me ask you about that change agent question. Yeah. You know, you and I had a conversation about the Trump phenomenon. Do you think mm -hmm. it's fair to say that maybe both parties sort of underestimated this, maybe on the left and the right? How do, how do you explain what's going on? Well, I think on the Republican side, they clearly underestimated it because I think there was a, at the beginning of the, you know, remember there was, I think, 16, 19, I can't even remember how many people were on the nomination process on the Republican side. 57. And every, how many? 57. 57. Heinz ketchup. <laughs> he knows. That's why you remember. It's Heinz ketchup. Uh, uh, but, you know, what, what's, uh, I guess, let me first make one comment on what he said last night. You know, I, I, someone who's run for office, won and lost. I, I remember one election, I prevented a runoff by 17 votes. 17. That's a couple tables here. That's it. 
but you move on. You, so in a lot of ways, when I heard that comment last night, I said, you know, the politicals will all kind of get worked up on it. And then it will be a question of what's picked up the next day, because the way the media works is they'll find whatever that issue is. And what's happened now, for the next two or three days, this will be the issue. I think the first 30 minutes of that debate were exactly what you know, people weren't expecting was actually a debate. We actually had, I won't say who it is, they're in the room here, but we had an over and under of how long it would take Trump to revert back to his old pattern. And the, the number was 30 minutes. And actually it was 29 minutes and then he <laughs> flipped back to you know, interrupting and doing what he likes to do. So in a lot of ways, the debate started off, I think, in a very good position for Trump. He looked good, he looked strong, he's better than any debate he's done. Then it just kind of petered out. Now this issue has taken over all the debate of the issues, once again. It's a non-substantive you know, issue in a sense of you know, what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on in the economy, that's now not even on the discussion. But the change issue, and I agree with Sean that it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, there is this desire, and it's every election is about change in some format. It's just now it's very different. People are frustrated with a lot of things. It doesn't matter if it's Washington, or geez, I'm not making enough, or I got 14 things to do today, I got my kid in 13 sports events because I gotta go here and there. So frustration is much higher than ever before. So people are just looking for something different, whatever that is. And I think in a lot of ways, Trump is, you know, I agree, tapped into that. The question is that 10 or 15% that are left, that are trying to figure out who do I go for? And at the end of the day, people, you know, they, they, they want to find the person that they not only like, which is difficult in this election, to be frank with you, uh, but someone who's gonna take that job and be responsible with it. That is the test at the end of the day with some of these people. Because the 40 on each side are already done. They're, they're solid. And I think what happened last night, and you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I come from a state that is uh, a Democrat in Alaska is like a Republican on the East Coast. I mean, it's a, this, it's, a, it's not usually, it's just a lot of different issues we deal with. But I think in a way, Hillary just kind of got that little bit of edge, and it's not in the front 30 or 45 minutes, it was in the back half that she cleared the edge which gives that undecided, and actually if you see some of the groups that they're now talking about, that undecided groups that sit in a room, they run the little dial, the majority of them agreed that she picked up the edge. And in this race, where it is close, those edges are gonna determine the outcome, and it's gonna change in some of these elections as she did in the last, race, or last debate. So I think change is there, there's no question about it. It's at a hyper level than ever before, and it's changed for the fact of we're just fed up with everything. I mean, they have a love-hate relationship with Washington. They, they listen to what politicians say, then they go, well, you don't like any of that. But then you start hearing the lingo of the voter, and you're going, well, they're actually repeating what those politicians are paying in advertisement and talking on the debate. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic. But I do think last night with a little bit of an edge to Hillary because she kind of kept that level that people are looking for in this last 10, 12% vote, because that's all you're fighting over. I mean, even that, I agree with Sean, that there's a percentage of that that's just trying to say, someone of one of the two, please screw up so bad that I can vote for the other person. There's a percentage of that, I agree with you. And then there's this last, like the last batch that are like, give me something to vote for. Because actually, that's what Americans are about. They're aspirational. They want to be for something. And there's this percentage that are saying, oh, give me something 
And that's what they're looking for, that last percent. Go ahead. So I was just, uh, I mean, that's sort of, to your, your point, one of the, the, and this has been part of our closing argument, uh, you've, and you saw it last night, you saw it in the last three debates, Secretary Clinton has actually been talking about those issues and the solutions uh, that she thinks are the best way forward. She's been talking about uh, you know, making college more affordable. She's been talking investing in the middle class. She's been talking about really these key issues that I agree she may be someone uh, who's been around for a long time, but she's actually putting concrete ideas and solutions on the table. And then I think for those undecided voters, they're hearing solutions, they're hearing ideas. And they may say, well, you know, I don't know if she's really going to be change, but I think she's going to try and do uh, all the things that she's saying she's, she's going to do. Whereas with Mr. with Mr. Trump, all you're hearing is a lot of sort of empty rhetoric and talking about building a wall and how we're going to ban Muslims from entering the country. And we're going to, I mean, all those aren't sort of the, the issues that are talking about putting food on the table, things that you ran on uh, when you uh, ran uh, and, and, and got elected. Um, those are the things that I think are resonating. And that's why I think in the last three weeks, uh, Going into the first debate, the, the polls were, were pretty pretty close. I think what you've what you've seen this margin uh, uh, occur in the last few weeks, it's because she's been talking about those issues, and Donald Trump has been sitting there flailing around and having to deal with um, different sexual assault accusations and all this uh, other um, issues from his his past. Those are real uh, issues that are damaging to his to both his reputation and I think his perception within those undecided voters. Why isn't she? better liked. You talk to a lot of Trump people, <laughs> and it's, they can't stand her. Yeah. I mean, they say you she's pro Democrats too. <laughs> she's robotic. Uh, she can't be trusted. Uh, the crooked Hillary line has, has resonated with a lot of I people. And they, that. they claim that any other Democratic candidate, Biden or someone else, would be far ahead in the polls. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that, that uh, Vice President Biden would, would actually be that much further uh, ahead in the polls. I think, look, she's been in the public eye for 30 years. She's been viciously attacked uh, by and had more ads run against her than just about anybody else in political history. Uh, so you're going to be, I mean, that is part of that is just going to be baked in from what she's uh, had to, to do. And look, the campaign recognizes that that is something uh, that we have to, to deal with. And that's, I think, what, where we see her best strength is her talking about the things she's done, uh, whether it's helping uh, young people in, in Arkansas, uh, whether it's fighting for women and girls as Secretary of State. Like talking about those legacy issues and things she's actually done uh, are the things that are, are sort of getting people to a place of comfort that she can be president. And I don't think anybody questions that when she steps foot in the Oval Office, like she will be ready for the job. I don't think you can say that about Donald Trump. The, 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 the point to your question is, it's not the issues, right? It's, it's the trustworthiness, because you don't know whether or not you can believe her on those issues. Because what we find out over and over again with Hillary Clinton is that, as she said, you have to have a private stance and a public stance. That there is a trust factor with her. So it's not, in a lot of cases, especially with sort of the center left, that they maybe disagree with her on the issues. They don't trust her. They don't like her because they don't find her believable. And because I think, frankly, over and over again for the past 30 years, it's not the number of ads that have been run. It's the behavior that she has conducted herself with. And the idea that they have this second set of rules for the Clintons that they can operate in their own spectrum that everything's for the greater good as decided by them and they can operate it however they want. That's what I think the bigger problem with Hillary is. It's not that you, you guys don't have an issue problem with, with the center left. You have a trust problem and a credibility problem because people don't trust her and they don't like her. And that's well, a very, very different than, than when you run for office and you have a policy problem. 
Well, I, I guess the comment I'd make, you know, I, I, I want to echo a little bit of what Adam said, and that is the amount, I mean, the, go back all the way to Bill Clinton getting elected president. The minute he got elected, they, it, was, it was like, how do we figure out how to impeach this guy and continue to be pounding on him? So no matter what we think, the media has a huge powerhouse here of repetition of message. In other words, both candidates are not liked, not trusted to a certain extent. Trump is risk. That's his word that he's now associated. He's a, he's a risk factor. You know, people don't like risk with an elected official, especially someone who has control over, you know, maybe say the red button, whatever you want to call it with nuclear weapons or whatever. People don't want someone sitting in the presidency that has a risk factor. Both these candidates have issues because the power of, you know, this is, I, I don't know if it was on your <coughs> list of discussion, but the amount of money now spent in campaigns, this will be billions, billions spent in this election cycle. The amount of outside money that don't have to really be accountable to really anybody uh, can say whatever they want, and they do it. Kerry was a great example, the Swift, uh, the, the, the issue on his military record and the group that kind of started, that was the kind of the 527s that kind of appeared, I don't know, what kind of the first real samplings. Now we have C4s and all these groups that can just do whatever they want, say whatever they want, and not be held accountable by anybody. And so on one hand, you wonder why voters want change and are frustrated. Well, because you, you, know, you said earlier that the media wants to kind of get this campaign over with. Hell, the public wants to get this over with <laughs> because they're fed up you know, luckily, in a way, Alaska is not a battleground state, except, I will say, the latest poll shows Trump at 37 and Clinton at 36 in Alaska, which has been a Republican state since Johnson. So you go back some years here. And, but we don't get all the commercials. But when I travel and I turn on the TV, I want to turn it off because the amount of non-candidate ads that are inundating, and they're not positive. I mean, there's no positive ads that they put on. It's all about how to drown out, kill their opponent for one simple reason, and that is to stop people, and I, they will not ever say this, but how do you turn off the voter from not participating? I mean, I was at a, a hotel in Tahoe two nights ago, and I mentioned, I was getting my car, and the guy says to me, I said, what do you think? And he looks at me and says, ah, they're both bad. And I, and I wanted to go into a little more discussion, but he was getting my car, so I wanted to actually get it. Um, so I, I just said, okay, thank you very much. And I kind of, but this is a guy probably in his mid-20s who's frustrated. And this is, this is the danger of this election. We can say win or lose, who's going to win, but the way it's been conducted has drawn it down to the deepest level of, I think, mud that I've ever seen. And because of that, more and more people are not participating or will not participate and so now it's just about how do you spend the money, get your target group, get that 5%, and then beat down your opponent. So this is a dangerous precedent setting. And I think with the Clintons, they've had 30 years of getting hammered into the ground over anything they do, no matter what. And on the flip side, Trump has now gotten a little flavor of that. You know, he's been kind of insulated, but now he's in the election process. And even last night, you could see when he got criticized, his body, I love the two shots they do. That's actually the best way to watch a debate because you see the opponent and how they react. He did not like his credibility being questioned about anything but because he blames everyone for everything that he's done wrong, but that's another issue. Uh, but the point is... Including that, winning an Emmy or not it, winning. Not winning an Emmy. He was very upset about that, obviously. And he showed that, actually, which I thought was like... If, if I was advising Donald Trump, I'd say... 
just try to, like the first 30 minutes, just look at the camera, smile. Don't make one mouth facial expression. Just do us the favor. And then when you want to say something, bite your tongue and wait. Wait the rule, some wait 10 seconds, some wait 24 hours, he should have a 48 hour rule. Because he cannot help himself, and he's actually, the commentary today was very interesting in early news, he's his worst enemy. He, he's consistent about being inconsistent, and then he constantly, he, like I said, we had an over and under, 30 minutes, 29, boom. He was already back to his old pattern, and it was like, because voters, some of them, you're right, they want to kind of vote for Trump, and then they look at him and they go, <sighs> There's a risk here. Uh, Barry, let me ask you about some of the moments that were alluded to uh, from the debate again. Um, quote, we have bad hombres here, <laughs> and we've got to get them out. There goes Arizona. <laughs> Nevada. And then, and then at the end, um, <laughs> Secretary Clinton was talking about him evading taxes, and he didn't like it, and he said, such a nasty woman. <laughs> Does that help broaden the base? Well, uh, so I think part of Is that the... a trick question? Barry and I do a lot of trick questions. <laughs> no, it's, it's really not. And we're not supposed to say it, but there's a whole bunch of people out there that think mm -hmm. that. Yeah. They think she's a nasty woman. I'm sorry. But they're voting for him already. But, but I, I think this is... To pick up on something Mark said, <coughs> to me watching all of this, the thing that I think is most frightening, my guess is this is going to be the lowest turnout election in modern history. And it, it, we have to remember, 60% of the people who participated in the primaries voted for Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, Ben Carson, and Ted Cruz. And all four of them had the same message, blow the place up. Now, they wanted to blow it up for different reasons, but it was blow the place up. And if you're in this room, which I, I'll not in a pejorative way say, we're about as much establishment as you can get. If <laughs> you don't recognize that 60% of the country is just done with us, and that's what he's getting to. So when he speaks that way, I'm not going to defend it or say it's the right thing. When you travel around the country, that's the way people talk. And they, they hate being lectured to that you can't use this word or that word when that's what they feel. And, and so as I watched that last night, all I could think about was, yes, the people who love or hate their particular candidate, they're still going to be there. But what I worried about is this, whatever the number is, 20%, 5%, they watched that last night, and they're like, I, I can't do this. I just can't do this. You know, the polls in the last couple of weeks, it, it's not because Hillary Clinton's getting her message out. It's because they were smart enough to go put her in a bunker and let Trump go running around and be the focus. If they put her out there, it reminds people, oh, yeah, I really don't like her. And that's what we had last night. Let me ask you about down ballot, because if you take uh, the integrity of the voting system combined with voter suppression and a lot of other factors, there's a number of Republicans, perhaps some Democrats as well, but certainly Republicans that are really concerned about their own elections. Uh, we have a very tight Senate race here in the state of Nevada. 
could possibly determine the, the outcome of the United States Senate. Are you concerned about uh, folks like Joe Heck here in the state of Nevada, uh, Pat Toomey, or every, every, how are they all doing? Uh, I think they're doing fine. I think it's gonna be tight. Um, but if you look at, the, the beautiful thing about uh, our Senate races, whether it's Mark Kirk in Illinois, Ron Johnson, Joe Heck, these guys have come, they've been playing their A game. I mean, there's not one of them, and I say that because, you know, if you look back the last couple of cycles, you had Dick Luger, who forgot that he lived in Indiana, um, <laughs> and, 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 and a couple, and, and Mike Castle in, in, in Delaware, who would have been a great United States Senator for, for Delaware, but didn't, you know, and a lot of these guys did not recognize the forces that were going on, whether it was in their primary or in the general election, and, um, and I think that every one of these guys, from Heck to Toomey to Rubio to Kelly AI, sort of, they knew what this cycle was gonna look like and they've been on their game, raising money back in their district, running a phenomenal race. I mean, there's not one of them that is being panned for not running a, a top-notch campaign. Um, that being said, in each one of these states, it, it is gonna be close. Uh, there are competitive, there's a lot of money in the system. Um, the, the one thing that you just touched on that I can't let go is, like this idea of voter suppression. It's really interesting because when you actually go back and look at David Pluff's book, <clears throat> they talk about, um, it, it always it comes out as a Republican idea because no one wants to talk, and it, I'm not excusing it, but it's just, it's always a very one-sided argument. But go back and read David Pluff's book. One of the things they did in a place like Ohio was they sent mail to conservatives and said Mitt Romney's not a conservative. They didn't want them to vote for Barack Obama. They just didn't want them to vote for Mitt Romney. So it's really interesting how sometimes people throw in a word like voter suppression as if Republicans, I mean, we spend millions of dollars trying to get people to register, trying to get them out. Um, we've got an app out called vote.gop that tells you if you're registered, you know, can you register early, can you vote early, where do you vote early, how do you get an absentee ballot? <clears throat> but I think that, to, that I, I find these, these narratives very interesting because a lot of times they sort of go unchallenged and I think the, the media has this sort of set of Republicans do all this stuff that's right or wrong, Democrats do this stuff that's really good and it's altruistic. Um, I, we spend a ton of money registering people, turning them out. Um, you know, I, I've spent six years at the party with Chairman Bryce Priebus trying to grow our party and reach out in the neighborhoods. And I know a lot of times people don't want to talk about that, but I think we've been very proud of the efforts that we have to go and, and bring more people into our party and to grow it. But Let I think, me, if I just, go ahead. I, I wasn't necessarily saying Republicans, it's both situations. No, no, That's I, why I, the turnout, I mean, Barry just said the point. We've had the last three cycles, turnout has gone down. Because people are at a point where it's like, what does my vote matter? I can tell you in, in our state, in our primary, you could see people skipping the ballot when it came to the federal elections and voted on their local stuff instead. So that indicator is the system is broken big time here, and I'll use Trump's words, it's a huge problem, it's a huge problem. And uh, he also uses big time. Um, uh, see what happens, you listen to it enough, it just kind of gets into your own vocabulary. Tremendous. Um, tremendous. Believe uh, me, folks. You know, believe me, believe me. Um, there's gonna be a whole book on this, I can see it actually. Actually be a good fundraiser for the RNC. Um, let me, uh, but the point is that that, that there are groups, and I'm not saying necessarily the parties, there are groups that their objective is 
you know, to win their campaign and by running as much negative ads that they run, which is 90% usually, they are turning off voters who may want to participate and say, I'm just fed up. And, and so they is, don't participate. Yeah, and, and, and this is dangerous for the to, society. To your, your point, so I'm, I, I serve on the board of one of these evil 527C4s doing <laughs> House Republicans. And what has been fascinating about this cycle is you can see it on the Republican side, you can see it on the Democrat side. Mark's point, these members and candidates made a decision early on, I'm going to run my race mm-hmm. because the top is so turbulent, I've got to figure out if the bottom falls out or something happens, how do I survive? And I think both parties are kind of struggling this right now because all of our historic data and all of our historic turnout models have these assumptions about top of the ticket and how things go. And what you're finding is Republicans and Democrats are struggling with this issue on the down ballot I know my people like me, they don't like what's at the top of the ticket, so how do I do this cross-messaging? And that, to me, is what's gonna be fascinating about this, is, is I think both parties are gonna have a challenge on turnout, because in, in the old days, we, we, we always called them those, I'm, I'm doing single candidate turnout, and you weren't ever supposed to do that out of party headquarters, but you made a conscious decision that for me to win, I've got to go find Democrats who's going to vote for the Republican on this down ballot. And I think that's going on every place right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just depends on what district you're in and what state you're in. And just from the art of it all, I'm just going to be fascinated to see how these numbers turn out. But I just want to, uh, on the, the voter suppression uh, point, I think uh, look, both parties have their, their GOTV tools um, and both sides of the campaign will have people who put out mailers that, I mean, that's as old as politics. I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, uh, George Washington had, had uh, mail dropped against him. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think there's a difference between that and, and, and categorically, systematically creating and passing laws in states to make it harder to vote. Uh, you look at North Carolina, Wisconsin, Texas, uh, these are some of the most restrictive laws that, uh, you know, and our, our sort of focus uh, from our, our party is that we should have more democracy, not less. And I'm not saying that as a slogan. It really is true. Like, we, we should win on the ideas. And we think we have the better ideas, but we should win on the ideas. But the fundamental point is that we should have more people and making it easier to vote. Early voting, uh, you know, making it easier to register to register and vote in the same place. Those are all critical tools that, that nobody should have any issue. If, you, if if you live in that area, and you should you should want them to participate in our democracy. So I think that is is just one uh, point that I just have to make. But on the sort of down ballot races, I think what you're you're seeing is that especially from a, the presidential cycle. It's, it's nearly impossible for those candidates to dodge what's going on at the, at the uh, top of the ticket. You know, in New Hampshire, Kelly Ayotte, uh, you know, was asked the question, does she think Donald Trump is, is a, a role model? Uh, and she said yes, and then the next day there's a video of him and Billy Bush, and she has to, like, deal with that. In, here in Nevada, uh, Nevada, sorry. 
Sorry. Nevada. Watch it. Nevada. Um, Watch it. I, I, I will admit when I'm wrong. I'm like, uh, the Republican nominee for president. So you, so you know how to apologize. Um, the video yeah, will yeah. be up by noon. Yeah. Uh, Nevada. Um, but, it was by two. But I think he, uh, um, you know, Joe Heck here has, has a real problem because he's tried to find a way to do this dance away from, from Trump uh, where one minute he's kind of with him, next minute he's not not sure, and then it, 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 more than anything, it just seems to people as inauthentic. And I think where, where, where Mark Kirk has been in Illinois, now he's got a tougher race, but Mark Kirk has been clear from the beginning that he doesn't support Donald Trump. There have been other candidates who said, yeah, I, you know, it's, I support Donald Trump, and, like, and I'm, I'll let the chips fall where they may. I think that authenticity is the, is the important. But, but, but part of that is interesting, the other side, which is I don't, Recall Ted Strickland running too many I'm with her ads. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's easy to, to hate on Donald Trump here, but it's not like the Democrats down ballot are like, oh, I am so happy that Hillary's at the top of the ticket. I sure wish she would come stand next to me. <laughs> it's just not happening. Right. In Nevada, it has, though. Huh? In Nevada, I think Catherine Cortez Masto. In, has. in certain, it, it's the same, that's what I said, certain districts, and I think this is where. You know, Mitch McConnell and, and, and Paul Ryan have told their teams, they're like, look, if it helps you to be that doing that, great. If you have to walk away from it, walk away from it. You've got your election to win. You can't worry about winning everybody else's election. Are we looking at Speaker Pelosi? God, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think you put Sean into a little slight heart attack. <laughs> no, I, I, that's not no, no. not going to happen. Nope. Yeah. I don't know. Daryl S is pretty nervous. Yeah. You know, he, just, he spent eight. You talked about my was at the House Oversight Committee. I remember him like, going after President Obama from day one, uh, and now he's running mailers talking about how how uh, President Obama how they work together and, and praising him <laughs> in his district. Um, they're, they're scared. I think that, that look, you think first of all, I, I, look, I will tell you this, and Barry, come back here. If you're running for senator, you, you, Congress, and you're not running scared, then you're not doing a good job. I mean, that's, if, if you are running for elective office for dog catcher and you don't run scared, that's how people lose. And so I hope that every member, and frankly, I just hope a lot of Democrats sit back and go, oh, I'm fine. But, uh, <laughs> but that's, that's why people lose, is, is when they've got political atrophy and they sit back and say, hey, I got it. So I'm glad I wouldn't say I mean, that, that they should that they should shouldn't run scared. I think when you're you spent eight years att attacking the president, and then like a month before election day, you're praising him and running ads about him. You're doing that because you think you're going to lose. And, no, you and do it because you're saying I accomplished something. I mean, a bill can't become a law unless the president signs it. For the most part, I mean, <laughs> no, no, and Sean, so he ran an ad. No, no, but just let's get back to what this is. He ran an ad saying I'm I'm pleased that the president Obama signed my bill into law. And the media turned around and said, oh, he's praising Obama. I mean, well, but, but John, you know in media, I mean, I can tell you this from, they, they do not, first off, he poll tested that. He determined in that district, mentioning Obama in a soft way, in an ad, is okay. Because otherwise he wouldn't do it. Because that is the politics of today. They don't, he does, especially Daryl Issa, I've, I know him, I've been in front of his committee before as a senator, I've been, you know, listened to him yell at me. Uh, you know, so uh, he, his, he doesn't run, an, he wouldn't, two years ago he wouldn't run an ad like that. He's running it now because it's an advantage for him politically because his political consultants have said there, 
Obama is like now, it's 55%. Holy mackerel, you gotta get a scorecard off of him some way, but don't be too over because you'll lose this other person. That's what it goes on. Don't because he signed it. I mean, come on. No, no. That's the only thing he liked that, about that, ISA. It's this idea that somehow they're running. I mean, I think it's a little overblown. What it is. I, I don't. I mean, the media does take it beyond where it should. Right. No question about that. But don't underestimate what a Daryl ISA will do to win his election. And he doesn't mind riding on the back of Obama for you know just a little bit. But he, of course, didn't say. He loves Obama, he just said he signed a bill. Just enough to get that five, six points in a race that's tighter than he anticipated six months ago. I mean, Do you actually so think the House could flip? I think it is, we're closer uh, than we've been uh, in, since 2010. I, I honestly think uh, there are, uh, especially with, I think that this is where the debate last night could actually have consequences because I think a lot of Americans are waking up today looking at their morning paper uh, or looking on Twitter or Facebook and they're seeing that comment about the democracy and whether he's not going to support. And I think, the bottom, I think the bottom is going to fall out for Trump. And I think there are a lot of members that thought they were safe. This will happen to us in, in 2010. A lot of members who thought they were safe, they thought, I'm going to be, be okay, who nobody was talking about. You know, I mean, uh, Rick Boucher in Virginia. Like a month out of election, nobody thought Rick Boucher was on, was had any, and this is again, in the very, very, very but. Because uh, Barry's working the other Boucher side. Been, but but th that, that was sort of like a, where in the last real month of, of, of the campaign, at least in, on our side, thought like, oh, the bottom's really falling out. And that's where I think actually, uh, where you could see um, some races. I'm not, I'm, I, we're, we're doing uh, all the things that we need to do to, make, to put it in, in play. Um, I think I, I'm confident that we're going to win the, the Senate, uh, and um, you know I, we'll see what happens on election day. How about the Senate? You think it's who's going to be a majority leader? Mitch McConnell. <laughs> <laughs> there, there goes that one. I'm, I, I'm, a, I, I'm a staffer. We, we learn how to answer the question. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you about the, the future of the Republican Party. Now, you folks might argue that there was a schism in the Democratic Party. I mean, we saw that during the primary season, and a lot of the supporters of Senator Sanders, some of their issues maybe weren't properly addressed, and there, there's still a contention out I still there. Think there's, yeah. Uh, that there's some angry, upset people that think that Hillary Clinton is tied into Wall Street and didn't. And didn't well, so let's, let's address that first of all. Yeah. You might say the schism isn't as deep as the Republican Party, but there are still some angry, maybe young millennials out there that aren't on Hillary's train yet. Look, I think uh, like we have uh, like our system is such that people disagree and have different ideas and how they think they should, that, that uh, issue should be addressed, and that is true within the, our party. That is true within the the GOP. I think um, there is no question there is a wing of the Democratic Party that wants a more liberal agenda and they want to fight for that. That's, that's fine. Like We have come to an agreement and look, and look at our platform, which is the most aggressively progressive platform we've ever put forward. And that was a meeting and a, a coming together of the Clinton side and the Bernie side. And I think you know, we're, we're running on that, that platform. I, and I think we're going to, uh, when Hillary Clinton is elected president, we're going to govern on that, that platform. I think those are the issues uh, that were are focused on. I think there are, are have different degrees and, and uh, beliefs on single payer versus uh, you know what we have with with uh, the Affordable Care Act. There are different views on you know whether to go back to Glass Steagall or other parts of or attacking shadow banking. Those things are 
like debates within the party. That's that's fine. I, I think we you where you where you get to is you you come to a sort of common place and then you try to govern on that. And that's where I think you look at our convention. That's why it was so successful in the end. We did come together. Before I let the other side, uh, Senator. You know, there, there were a lot of upset people at the Democratic Convention. We saw that in prime time uh, that were not pleased with that process, were not pleased with the nominee. We saw it even in Nevada that were upset uh, Bernie Sanders supporters. Well, I can tell you in Alaska, in our convention, there was, I think, 85% Bernie Sanders, 15% Hillary. And I think, uh, you know, Democrats, you know, our challenge always is, you know, we have you know, for every person, every person has five different views on what's going on and argue with themselves at times. And we have many different views within the party. That's, that's the challenge. But Bernie, uh, you know, in a way, like Trump, tapped into this kind of frustration, which is interesting because he's a U.S. senator, frustrated in Washington, but yet he's there. But he was able to tap into that because the way he spoke was just, here it is. And sometimes you may like that or not, but he just kind of said it and kind of... Not, I, I use Trump as an example because both of them are just saying what they think and what they've done. Bernie has been doing that from day one. That's who Bernie has always been. But what he has been able to do was galvanize a sizable amount of younger people who are frustrated with the system, who are philosophically aligned with the Democratic Party, but want something different and they're not sure what it was. Bernie came along and said, here's what it is. And they said, I like that because he's not viewed establishment, which is kind of unusual because he's in the U.S. Senate, but they viewed him, you're not establishment. And he was able to capture that. So in the party, that's going to continue to be a, a challenge, but I think the way the convention handled it was we're going to include Bernie as much as possible in, in his people and his ideas. But I think that does not solve the problem until you govern and prove up. Because one thing about the voters today, they want proof point today. They're not going to be the patient you know, of the 70s and 80s and even the 90s of waiting two or three years for results. They want it today. And if they don't get it, they will switch again and do, find another Bernie or some other uh, person that's going to carry that torch for them. I want to remind you before we hear from the, the folks on this side, we have note cards on the table. We'll be glad to go ahead and ask your questions. And we have spotters around the room, so go ahead and fill those out. And again, on your side, here we have a schism that includes the Speaker of the House of Representatives. We have senators, well-known senators, that refused to get on the Trump train. I mean, we had uh, the highest elected officials in the state of Nevada, uh, the governor and the United States Senator Dean Heller that refused to get on the Trump train. So is this schism? irreparable or are we seeing it? No, look, I, I mean, I think winning solves a lot of problems in both parties <laughs> and, and in, in truth, at the national level. Um, yeah. I mean, the one thing that, that I always find fascinating from a, there's two, two issues. If you look at the Republican Party today, we've got the largest majority in the House of Representatives since 1928. We've got 54 United States senators last time. And for what it's worth, if you think back two years ago, the idea was maybe we'll take the majority. We took nine seats. We've got 66 and 99 legislators, more elected officials in this country than ever in our history before. Over 900 elected officials have lost office since Obama. Democrats have lost office. If, as a party, We've played a pretty good season. The problem is we lose the Super Bowl over and over again. Um, you know, it's true. And, and I mean, the flip side yeah. of the Democrats, they've done a phenomenal job the last couple cycles winning the White House, but they get killed at the local level. And I think that that's where there is sort of this, you know, the, the, the roles that the two parties and what we've been trying to do is figure out how do we, 
you know, build a party that can win at a national level in, an, in a presidential year. And they're trying to figure out how do we get more local folks into the pipeline? How do we get state and local officials, county clerks, all that kind of stuff? Uh, because the problem is Senator Baggage came up the way that most politicians, you know, they run for mayor, then they, they, they move the way up. The Democrats haven't been able to successfully cover the ground. So do we have issues that we have to deal with as a party? Absolutely. Um, the good thing for us is that there are more Republicans elected at every single level than ever before. Um, that doesn't excuse not winning the big game, though. I mean, you still, at the end of the day, that, that's what the big prize is. And I think that we've got to continue to work on that. Winning helps do that. You saw the Democratic Party. Joe Lieberman was on, was you know the VP nominee under Gore, then lost his primary in Connecticut and had to run as an independent. Right? You had Code Pink, all of this churn, Obama gets elected, and suddenly it's kumbaya. And that's what winning at the top helps with a lot with a party. And same thing with Bush. We went through a lot of churn in 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 the um, in the late nineties and then you know we we elect Bush and and you know there was a lot of concern in the House and the Senate that everyone was voting in lockstep with George Bush. I mean, what happens when you win at the top of the ticket and you have the White House is it solves a ton of problems. So I know it sounds simple, but part of, part of that um, churn in a party exists when you don't have that titular head of the party that can kind of calm everyone down or be that, that, um, the figure that brings everyone together to solve a lot of the problems. Are you concerned about the future of the Republican Party? No. I, it, it, and to echo what, what Sean is saying here, Boehner always had this thing that he would say, why, why can't your members all be on the same page? And he's like, look, I'm just happy if they're singing out of the same hymnal. <laughs> you know? And when you're in the White House, there's only one person in charge. And that's what's fascinating when you, when you um, think about cabinet officials. And especially when they do things like pick governors as cabinet members. Like, well, I'm running this agency. No, you're a staffer for the President of the United States. And you just get a car. Yeah, and, and that <laughs> voice matters. So, um, and, and I'll go back to my state, Ohio, where it's always supposed to be a swing state. And, in, and by any definition, it is, except Republicans dominate the state. And it's because. Republicans at the local level are connecting on issues that are actually mattering to, 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 to voters. And at the national level, we haven't unlocked that yet. And Speaker Ryan is trying to do that with his Better Way agenda. And frankly, if you're a member of Congress and you don't know how to deal with the top of the ticket, Paul has given this to you. Look, I'm running for the House of Representatives. Here's the five things that we want to focus on we're going to pass these bills, and all I know is that when they go to the president's desk, Donald Trump is more likely to sign them than Hillary Clinton. That's it. And how do you translate that down to the local level and make it real to people? And that's, I think both parties are struggling with that right now, but I have more confidence on our side because the winning record down at the state level tells me We've got that formula. We just got to translate it up to the top. How do you think Paul Ryan has handled can the I, Trump phenomenon? One, 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 one kind of note on this. It, it is interesting. If you look back at the last election, um, we, we lost 51-47. There were four states, 250,000 votes. If you spread about it. And again, I'm not excusing losing. I, just, I think sometimes keeping losing in perspective um, is important because you've got to remember what you need to do to, to, to get yourself right and to win. And I think when we look back, a lot of times it's, you know, we got crushed. It's, again, we, we, we mopped up 
nationwide, and we lost the presidency basically by 250,000 votes in, among four states. Um, and I think that as we move forward, we've got to remember how do we grow a party in a way that sort of puts more of those states in play. And it, it's interesting because you look at, you know, I, I was there four years ago when we talked about Romney's path to victory, and we had to have like a triple bank shot off of the ceiling, <laughs> and it was just like, look, it's, seriously, if we get Virginia and then Puerto Rico becomes a state before the election, and then we had it, I mean, it was, it was, you know, we had all these scenarios, but if you look, it's interesting, I mean, you've got, we're, we're talking about states that Obama carried for, for twice, you know, Nevada, uh, Iowa, uh, Virginia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania. Now, again, you may argue that on election day that we don't, and I'm not arguing, but those are states that we're talking about right. as being in play and part of the electoral map strategy that frankly weren't part of that same map or strategy four years ago. And it's interesting, I mean, there is a growth in the party and a growth in the electoral strategy that has occurred. But to that point, in, in 2004, Virginia and North Carolina weren't even on the, on the map. I mean, there weren't even, it wasn't even a question that Virginia was some a state that we thought we would win. North Carolina was was like was not on anybody's mind. You know, one of the, the key uh, points, even in, in 2012, yes, we lost North Carolina, but but Mitt Romney had to spend. Uh, he was he was doing campaign events in North Carolina in October. Uh, you know, right now, as we sit 20 days out from Election Day, you know, we're making big investments in Arizona. There's a, a Texas. There's a poll that has Hillary Clinton down two. I mean, like I, we're the map where we are. Uh, right now, there's no question that we're on offense and the states where we are running campaigns uh, where we are making investments in are states that we're, we're happy to have if we can, but we don't need them to get to 270 electoral votes. Um, and I think that's why I think you know, the camp, we feel confident of where we are uh, in the race. We're happy to be in Arizona. We're happy to be in North Carolina. We're happy to be, you know, I don't, don't know if we'll be in, in Alaska. Um, but, uh, we'll take you. But we'll take you. But, um, you, know, you got a congressional and, candidate And, and so that's, I think, is why. And, and even a state like, like Missouri, right? There's a really great Senate race. We have a really great candidate running for Senate in Missouri. You know, the polls are close in Missouri. Missouri has not been a swing state for, for more than a decade. And, and so that's why I think where why we feel confident where we, where we are. And I think that will help, uh, to Sean's point, sort of paper over or some of the, the differences uh, that we may have is when we've got a Senate majority and hopefully a House majority. Real quickly, we're going to get to these questions, uh, but I did want to uh, ask you about this phenomenon of early voting. I mean, they estimate what 40% of the people will have voted yeah. before November 8th. So really, what kind of <coughs> do these do? debates accomplished, yeah. if anything. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I can tell you in my 08 election, um, I lost election day and won two weeks later because of early voting. One third of the vote came in. There were early votes and they were tallying them up in absentees. It's actually kind of an interesting way you have to do campaigns now. You actually have kind of two election dates, right? The date that the early voting starts and then election day. And so when those debates get played, also can have an impact. So if it's too late in the game, it's not irrelevant, but it becomes less of an impact. So if the debate, you do well, and it's really recognized, and early voting starting like literally the next day, it, it's a powerful tool. But it's, it's a, it, you know, a lot of people don't kind of, they still think election day, I, I don't think I voted on election day in over a decade. I've always voted early, or I vote absentee. Even when I'm in town, I vote you know, early, because I just want to get it done. And more and more people doing it, especially 
younger generation because they see it as convenience, right? It's not, oh, I've got to show up on Tuesday. I can just go vote, be done, lock it in. So it does change the dynamics a little bit. And debates do have, you know, I can tell you in my mayor's race that I won, it was before really early voting took place as it, the level it is now. And I had a debate on a Thursday. I was behind the polls by the Tuesday. I won. And, it, and opponents will tell you it was that debate because of what they asked. It was actually a character question. It had nothing to do with substance of an issue. It was how they answered the question. One was an incumbent, one was a former incumbent. They both lost, and they both will tell you it's because that debate. And we could tell the next day, you know, this is 03, so it wasn't really, you know, Facebook time and all that, but we could tell calls were coming in, and people say, well, I, I, you know, I, I never would think I'd have to vote for a baggage, but then they say I'm voting for them because those other two were idiots, and there was a TV debate. So debates can have an impact, especially in early voting, depending on when they're, when they're played. And I think we're, we're focused uh, on turning out the, the early vote. I think one of the revolutions from the Obama campaign in 2008 and 2012 is that we really are getting this down to, to a science. We know who the voters are in individual states. Um, and to, to your point, uh, we know currently today, in whether it's North Carolina, uh, Ohio, states where there are people, we're getting people, if, if you were an undecided voter, but you know you're gonna vote early, and you saw the debate last night, you're like, I'm gonna get it done. I'm gonna go vote, get it over with, like, seal the deal. Before some other thing yeah. happens. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, that's why we feel confident in a state like North Carolina, just looking at who's turning out to vote in North Carolina. Um, we know we're doing extremely well in the early vote there in North Carolina. And that's what helped us win in, in 2008. Question from a guest here. How important are Nevada's six electoral votes? Very. I mean, yeah. well, I'm not going to give any of them away. <laughs> um, I think if you're a Republican, look, the, the, the map automatically tilts to the Dems no matter what, right? Day one. Right. So November 9th, the, the map will tilt towards them for, um, for 2020. And because you've got California and New York uh, you know, banked the, some of these big states. And so we, we, we find ourselves at a disadvantage. And I think that what we've been doing, as I mentioned, um, putting those six electoral votes in an equation this time helps us a lot. It looks at, you look at, okay, you take that, you take Iowa, you take New Hampshire's four. I mean, we're looking at Maine too. So Maine and Nebraska are the only two states that split their electoral votes by congressional district. We feel we have a really good shot at Maine too. Um, you're going to see Trump and Pence both go back up there several times. We've been running ads up there. But that's one. We're going, we'll go after any of them. Um, and well, I think th There's another thing about, directly to your question, which we're not supposed to talk about, but, but I will, because that's what I do. <laughs> um, why this, this state is so important for us is because Harry Reid. And I really like Harry Reid. My Republican friends think I'm nuts for that. But I have huge respect. I mean, the man is a political fighter, and he never loses. He wants to deliver the state. And so for a lot of us, keeping him from doing that, that makes the state really important to us. I mean, if you it's want a trophy. To really get into it. <laughs> get so this is, on the wall. this is a Harry Reid legacy. I mean, that's sort of a backstory to this, isn't it? No, I think it is, and I, but I also think uh, Harry Reid's legacy and record of success actually is what gives us a lot of confidence that we can win the Senate seat here. You look at uh, his race in, in 2010, there's no question his organization is, was one of the best in the country. And we think uh, if, if the polls leading into the last couple of days of Election Day 
have Cortez Mastro down a point or two with Harry, with the operation in, in Nevada and the GOTB operation. Nevada. Was, <laughs> uh, Nevada. You're only allowed one more. Uh, okay, all right. Nope, all right. nope, all right. he's maxed it's, out. Yeah. <laughs> it's baseball uh, season, he gets uh, a little old. Uh, and the Indians are in the World Series, so. <laughs> uh, um, uh, I think uh, that, I think, is one of the, um, the points that really uh, make us feel confident that uh, he, he just has, knows how to win campaigns in, uh, in the state and we're gonna uh, ride that to election day. Okay, another question. Is there any way that a third party could ever be relevant in the United States? Relevant or win? Right, that's a, that's a good point. Because yeah. they, they are relevant. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no question. I mean, they were relevant in 2000, for goodness sake. I mean, ask Al Gore. Um, <laughs> they, they are, they, uh, Ross Pro, I mean, they, they have an effect on elections, absolutely. Can they win? I don't think so. But not in our lifetime. There was a lot of media attention on Gary Johnson. You know, he was going to pull votes probably more so from Hillary than from Trump. And then he, he had his Aleppo moment and a, and a few other things. Could that could he have been a force uh, if he hadn't screwed up, or or is, was that just? Yeah, so I, this is this, this thing. Go back to how many people in this country are disappointed with what their choices are. Right. If the two parties can't address this then I do think there's room that something could occur here. But I, I think what is more likely is you'll see both the Republican Party and the Democrat Party try to update itself to be more responsive to what voters' concerns are. So from that standpoint, you're gonna have a new Democrat Party, you're gonna have a new Republican Party, and we would look at them 20 years from now and say, oh, well, that's the third party, because they just remake themselves. But Barry, yeah, I think I, one of the... Uh, I think what a lot of folks who may be, um, what they want is they want to see things actually get done mm -hmm. in D.C. Uh, they want to see them actually solve problems. They want to see a Speaker of the House, whether it's a Republican, actually tackle the big challenges and questions on a bipartisan way um, across the country. And uh, we need more leaders like Senator Begich in the Senate who are willing to work. I paid him for that. That was... Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Every time he mentioned I get, it's only yeah, $5. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, <laughs> but that was... Uh, who, but I think that is what actually... And, and I think you would know better than anybody, there, there was a, uh, a real governing majority in the House when Speaker Bannon was there. Uh, he had to make his own political choices as to what we could and, and could do. But I think that um, finding a way to get there I think will help solve a lot of the, the sort of big picture political they, um, talk about a third party. They want, people want like, us to stop and get things done. And I think that is one of the biggest. You know, there's an interesting, I can't remember what, who did the polling, but they've been doing some tracking and they've been watching registration and you look at some of the, uh, uh, I forget which, how many, I think they call them the 90 house districts that may, you know, could, could swing one way or another election by election. And you'll see two, two or three things. First, you'll see Democratic and Republican registration dropping, nonpartisan, independent, rising. And that's, I think, a generational thing, too. I mean, in Alaska, we have more people who are running for office, for legislature, who are identifying themselves as independent than ever before. In other words, actually, candidates that are going to probably win that are not Democrat or Republican. Now, they may be supported by a Democratic Party or Republican Party, but they're picking up the label of independent. Uh, which I think is very interesting, and, and maybe it's more of a West Coast, you know, not necessarily Washington, Oregon, California, kind of the Rocky Mountain, kind of different kind of states, 
uh, where that's starting to, a, a trend I see there. But I think in Alaska, the reason I think the election right now, the polling numbers show them so close is because the independent candidate, the libertarian candidate, is sucking away votes and it forces them two together in, in a weird way you know, let's say it's really close and you have some of these, you know, let's say at the end of the day, electoral college is really close because of an independent who sucks away enough votes, you could flip it and cause the red state not to be a red state by a fluke in small states because the voting population will be a lower voter turnout. And if you're a libertarian, you're voting libertarian. You're, 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 you're with your guy no matter what. So it's an interesting dynamic. I don't think they'll ever, I agree, that, you know, being seen an independent in the presidency, I just don't see it in my lifetime, but I see them impacting elections, no question. Well, Utah, for- uh, Yeah, Utah's a great example, I mean, it? it's definitely You discovered up. our secret plan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're gonna, you know, whether it was Evan or Mitt Romney, and they're going to get all of Utah's votes, and then somehow the rest of the country is going to split evenly, and the House decides, and Paul Ryan's Fine. our president. <laughs> Ta-da! It's not so hard. Remember, what stays in vague. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, we just have time for a few questions. We're going to take real quick answers, uh, and we want to take one more from our guests. This is about Secretary Clinton, the Supreme Court. Uh, that was a pretty strong response from both candidates, actually, early on in the debate. It was considered by some, uh, Donald Trump, one of his higher moments or, or um, something that they could actually understand. And that is um, <laughs> they're concerned about uh, Clinton's appointments to the Supreme Court. This person probably is concerned about Trump's appointments uh, to the Supreme Court because he definitely talked about, I'm pro-life. I don't think he's ever been that definitive uh, about appointing a pro-life jurist to the Supreme Court. How, how does that, real quickly, how does that all, how did you, how did you take so, that? Can I, can I just, having a lot of time in the House on this, the court is extremely important. And I think the, the fact that it hasn't been front and center in a public way in this campaign is because it, it plays to each other's basis. Mm -hmm. The real problem with the court is that Congress writes crappy laws. They, they, you can't <laughs> interpret them, you leave it to the courts. And if you talk to judges, they're frustrated by this. And I, the thing that disappointed me last night with both of their answers, neither one of them said, I want a justice and a Supreme Court that will stand by the law. She's talking about- Trump came kind of close though, I thought. I was gonna he say. Kind, he kind of, you know, but it was like these issue types of things. And she's like, I want a court that's gonna stand by the people. And I'm like, I don't know, I thought the court was supposed to balls and strike, this is what the law says. And Congress, if you don't like us having to make these decisions, why don't you write the law clearly? Well, I mean, I, actually, I, I will say, I thought he was very clear on that. And again, you can disagree with, but I think right. one of the things that I thought was very helpful last night on both sides, frankly, was if you, if you are a strict constructionalist, if you are, are pro-life, if you are pro-Second Amendment, you have your candidate. And you know where he's going with the court, good or bad. And if you like Hillary talking about, you know, I want someone to kind of have this open interpretation, and then, then that's your person. But I do think that, I, I would agree with Barry, that the idea that the court and the impact it's gonna have, because it's not one election, these guys and women that are gonna get appointed will be there and shape laws that will impact not just a generation, but I think, you know, way beyond that. Regulatory stuff, 
um, how we you know, handle detainee, I mean everything, really impacts the, the direction of this country. And I think that that really should be an area that people recognize as a clear contrast between these candidates. Real quickly, Supreme yeah, Court. No, it was, it was the one part of the, the debate that was solely focused on, on issues, and I think uh, that lasted 29, 29, 29 minutes. minutes. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I think Secretary Clinton I mean, holds the, the values uh, of protecting a woman's right to choose, being able to marry whoever you love, um, and protecting the right to vote. Uh, those, are, those are core beliefs that she has, and, and as the president has, uh, hopefully as the president will have the ability um, to appoint a, a jurist to the Supreme Court who, um, who she wants to look at the, at the laws that, that come forward uh, and make a decision based on, I mean, that's why elections happen, that's why they matter, that's why those, um, you know, that, I think where we get into uh, a problem, and I think Barry, you're sort of alluding to this, was that it, the court has become much more political than it ever, it ever was. Uh, and I, I think that speaks to a, a, a broader uh, uh, over-partisanship um, uh, of some of these key uh, parts in our, in our society. Senator Bigger, I, I just you say, have the final statement, by the way. Yeah, I just say that I think that part of the debate was a good part. I mean, that people could, could really see the contrast, and I think that was healthy in a lot of ways. Uh, but as I'm also amazed how little the Supreme Court justice issue uh, the Supreme Court has talked about in this election when you think about the generational impact. Because whoever is president is not going to, you know, they're going to appoint a young person who's going to be there multiple decades, which will have generational impact because this is the seat that if it's Hillary, then obviously that person will be more moderate liberal. If it's Trump, it's going to be definitely more, you know, as it was, that seat was occupied as. But I, I think it's, it's amazing how little it's talked about, which has enormous impact that is beyond congressional powers. I mean, I, I just think it's amazing. All right, we've come to the end of our panel discussion. These guys did a terrific job. Can you give them a nice? <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.